Welcome to our newest Hearts Unite the Globe hug patrons. Annie Olchek, we sincerely appreciate your support. Thank you for joining our community and making a difference through Patreon. Judy Miller, thank you for being our first Buzzsprout supporter for Bereave But Still Me. Buzzsprout started a new program where you can actually support the podcast of your choice. There are so many ways you can support Hug. All you have to do is visit our website, heartsunitetheglobe.com, to see how you too can help empower, educate, and enrich the lives of individuals in the CHD and bereaved communities. Thank you all for your continued support. Welcome to the third Medical Monday for Heart Month, February 2023. This is a special mini-series for Heart to Heart with Diana during Heart Month. And today, my husband, Frank Jaworski, is in the studio with me. We're going to talk about something we both found fascinating when we read the book, King of Hearts, which is a biography of C. Walton Lillehi, and it's by a Rhode Island writer named Jean Wayne Miller. I have actually attended a couple of professional heart conferences, and I believe there's like a game that pediatric cardiothoracic surgeons play, which is six degrees of separation for surgeons from C. Walton Lillehei. Apparently he trained so many surgeons and is going to take on that game that's played with Kevin Bacon, only they do it with Dr. Lillehei. Have you ever heard of that before, Frank? Which one? The Kevin Bacon thing or the Walton Lillehei thing? Either one of them. I've actually heard of both. Have you? Yeah. I know that what actors do is they say that if you go through six connections or seven connections, whatever it is, you can find a movie that you guys have in common somehow with Kevin Bacon. And the cardiothoracic surgeons say if you go back six or seven generations of training, then somehow you trace back to Little High. It's amazing to me. This man has touched so many people's lives, and he is actually crowned one of the pioneering cardiothoracic surgeons for the field of pediatric cardiology. We know that Dr. Walton C. Lillehei was a pioneering pediatric cardiac surgeon in Minnesota in the 1950s. And like many heart surgeons of that era, one of the biggest challenges was to keep the patient alive while opening their heart to repair it. Absolutely. And they had done surgery on the exterior of the heart, on injuries to the heart, on the great vessels, that sort of thing. But the idea of actually opening the heart, which obviously if you do it while the heart is pumping, normally then the blood will come out and the patient will die. But the ability to operate on the patient alive and not have them bleed out was one of the things that that they strove for. Scary. It's scary to think, especially for a baby. It's one thing when you're talking about an adult who has lived a good percentage of his life, but an infant has their entire life ahead of them. So I think it's a little bit scarier. Plus, the size of an infant's heart is about that of a walnut, so it's unbelievably tiny. To think that you could get in there and operate while the heart is beating with the blood all around it, it really takes somebody with a lot of courage, don't you think, Frank? I do. And I have to tell you, I've never done anesthesia for a pediatric cardiac surgery, but I've done a lot of adults for cardiac surgery. And one of the things I find fascinating is the degree of communication between the surgeon, the perfusionist who does this kind of thing every day with this kind of machinery, 
and the anesthetist. There's a constant circle of communication as to what's going to happen next and what you're doing. That makes perfect sense, Frank. That really does. So we know that Dr. Lilla High did a number of open heart surgeries on children with congenital heart conditions in 1954 using a very daring technique. And that's what Frank and I really want to talk about today. He would actually get one of the children's parents who shared their blood type to act as a living heart-lung machine. This just blows my mind. The technique was called cross-circulation, and he would anesthetize both the patient and the parent and connect their circulation by sterile tubing and a blood pump. This allowed him enough time, sometimes more than 20 minutes, in which to repair complex defects like ventricular septal defects or VSDs, AV canal or atrioventricular canal, or even tetralogy of below. So first of all, Frank, you're a nurse and like me, you're a bit of a CHD geek. What did you think when you read that parents were used as living heart-lung machines? Well, I have to say that, first of all, it's pretty gutsy because the surgeons, first of all, they had to ask the parents to give their child over to them and trust them to them. But then they also had to ask one of the parents to trust them too. This wasn't without risk, and it took a lot of guts on the part of the parents. On the part of the parents and the surgeon, I can't imagine doing something like this. This is akin to operating on a woman who's pregnant. There is more than one patient at risk. As soon as you introduce anesthesia, that puts the parent or the patient at risk. Then you start cutting on people, too, and putting clamps on people. Who knows what can happen, right, Frank? Absolutely. In fact, it did say in the book that one of their techniques was to intentionally use general anesthesia for the parents. And they didn't really have to because all they were really doing was a cut down and an insertion of cannulas into the major vessels. So they could have used local anesthesia and a little bit of sedation, but they actually said they were afraid the parents might get nervous or upset or scared and literally try to leap off the table to help their child during the surgery. So they went yeah. for general anesthesia. As a parent of a kid with a heart defect, I totally get that. And yeah, I can't imagine being even a teeny bit awake while they were operating on my child. You're in the same room. You have to hear everything that's going on. I imagine it would be really scary. So I imagine if nothing else, a person's anxiety would be heightened in a position like that. Don't you think, Frank? Absolutely. I have escorted my child into surgery and watched him fall asleep and let him go. And that was a minor surgery. But still, just the thought of doing that to that degree is pretty scary. Yeah. So the book also stated that although more than half of the patients survived the surgeries and even thrived because their congenital heart conditions were repaired, one of the biggest criticisms at the time was the risk to the donor parent who acted as a living heart-lung machine. Well, absolutely. And that's what we were talking about was what courage it took to volunteer for that. Reading the book, there were many instances that were very scary. There was one woman who was terrified of having the anesthesia, so she wouldn't do it, even though she was the only parent and her blood type matched. And they had to find a different technique for ventilation of the patient. There was one case where neither of the parents' blood types matched, which is perfectly feasible. And so they went to the local blood banks and asked for a variety of people, and they found a man whose blood type matched. And he was a father. He had two small children plus one on the way, and he volunteered to be a heart-lung machine for a stranger because he thought, what if my child needed it and I couldn't take care of them? And it's a pretty brave thing to do. What's also scary is that the concerns about the safety of the parents, they weren't unfounded. There was one 
case where the mother volunteered to be the heart-lung machine, and there was a problem, and she got an air bolus, an air infusion into her vessels, which went to her brain and caused a stroke. She right. was comatose for days, and afterwards, she never fully recovered. I remember they said in the book that she had been a very good tennis player, and when she finally woke up, she wasn't able to play tennis. They said it was difficult for her to walk, and she couldn't even take right. care of her kids. I can't imagine being in that position, and yet, I know from having handed my child to the surgeon, that I would have done anything. In fact, I even remember asking the surgeon, and you may remember this too, Frank, when they told us how sick Alexander was, I asked if I could donate my own heart or a piece of my heart because I didn't know how things worked back then. And the surgeon told me that I needed my heart. If you're not knowledgeable in the field, which we've learned a lot since then, it's not an unreasonable thing because there are people that donate parts of their liver to their children or to other people or donate one kidney. So thinking a piece of heart muscle could be donated, it's not an unreasonable thing to say so desperate at the time because they told us that our baby wasn't going to survive without some kind of help. Right. Home Tonight Forever by the Baby Blue Sound Collective. I think what I love so much about this CD is that some of the songs were inspired by the patients. Many listeners will understand many of the different songs and what they've been inspired by. Our new album will be available on iTunes, Amazon.com, Spotify. I love the fact that the proceeds from this CD are actually going to help those with congenital heart defects. Enjoy the music. Home Tonight Forever. This content is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. The opinions expressed in the podcast are not those of Hearts Unite the Globe, but of the hosts and guests, and are intended to spark discussion about issues pertaining to congenital heart disease or bereavement. You are listening to Heart to Heart with Anna. If you have a question or comment that you would like addressed on our show, please send an email to Anna Jaworski at Anna at hearttoheartwithanna.com. That's Anna at hearttoheartwithanna.com. Now, back to Heart to Heart with Anna. The book stated that Lilla High's first cross-circulation patient died after surgery, but because of pneumonia not from the surgery or the cross-circulation. So he did the next two surgeries closely timed so as to avoid criticism in between them in case of a bad outcome with the first. Yeah, that's fascinating because when you read through the book, King of Hearts, it talks not only about Little High, but a number of other pediatric surgeons that were developing pediatric cardiothoracic surgery. And he wasn't the only person to do that. There was another case of a surgeon who had two failed surgeries, and people were beginning to think he would always kill these kids. So he scheduled his third and fourth surgeries, one in the morning at Philadelphia Children's Hospital, and the other one across town at a different hospital in the afternoon. And he basically did the first surgery, and the patient didn't make it. Then he zipped across town, so basically the news of the failure of the third patient wouldn't get there in time. He did the fourth surgery. That patient survived. So this technique of trying to basically hide your mistakes not unheard of. And I kind of understand it's terrifying to think he would do this. Now there's so much more openness about things that happen or problems or the death of patients. Back then, you could almost hide your mistakes. Yeah, with the internet the way it is now with Facebook and 
with Twitter and Instagram and TikTok and so many different avenues to get the word out, it would be much more difficult. But not only that, the FDA really cracks down on doctors so much more now than they did in the 50s, don't you think, Frank? Absolutely. And any kind of experimental technique like the cross-circulation or any kind of new pediatric heart surgery, now every hospital has an ethics committee that reviews the things that are happening. And you really have to prove that you have an idea of what you're doing and there's a good chance. You can't just take a flyer at it and kill your first four or five patients, which has happened in the past. Right. Like we talked about last week with Dr. William Thornton Mustard and his monkey lungs. Do you think that would get past an ethics committee today? Absolutely not. No. Yeah. I don't think so either. I don't think so. But who knows? This was in the dark ages of congenital heart condition, surgery. There was nothing else that was available. These kids were going to die without something. That's true that it was a long time ago. But who was that doctor at Loma Linda who used a baboon heart? As a yeah, Dr. Bailey. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was in the 80s. So that was yeah. 30 years later. Yeah. But it's still really early in the field of pediatric congenital heart surgery. And again, they were grasping at straws. They were doing whatever they could to help these kids to survive. And I commend these doctors. Now, sadly, Lilla High had to give up the cross-circulation technique, but he became one of the pioneers in the development of the heart-lung machining, which is the standard of care today. And so you have to wonder if he hadn't taken the chances that he did with the cross-circulation, would he have become the man to help develop that heart-lung machine? I have to think that he learned a lot from those procedures that he did. What do you think, Frank? Oh, I think absolutely. I think that even though sometimes the paths that the research takes or the experimentation takes, because it is experimentation, they may seem like blind alleys. But you learn things by everything you do. One of the things that he learned from this, as I recall from the book, is that it helps to use transparent tubing as opposed to opaque tubing because you can see if there are bubbles in the blood or not. Right. And also he learned how to use a roller pump, which is what he bought. It was actually a pump for a milk processing machine. Not surprising in Minnesota, which is a big dairy state, but he bought this pump. And roller pumps like that are what are used right now on heart-lung machines. They don't come from dairy machines, but they are designed in the same fashion. It's still a piece of tubing with a roller pump that makes it move. Amazing. It's amazing how things develop. And it reminds me of a conference that I went to in Florida pre-COVID that Dr. Gil Warnofsky put together. And it was about disruptive thinking and innovations in science and how we can learn things from other fields that can be applied to the field of pediatric congenital heart disease. It's amazing. When you think about it, the heart is a pump. And they were talking about how the field of gas and petroleum, they're dealing with pumps as well, and how some of the problems that they had in dealing with extracting gasoline and having the flow of gasoline go through different pumps is very similar to some of the problems that we have with blood flow. They were talking about other fields that you may not think are related, but they have the same kind of problems and how we can learn from other fields to be able to apply the physics, the chemistry, 
the sciences that are involved with those fields to the field of pediatric cardiology. That's fascinating. I know that very simple thing you're talking about, being able to pump fluids from one place to another, it applies to so many different fields. One of the things that people used to say was, oh, a person's really smart, they call him a rocket scientist. That was because in the early days of rocket science, there were a couple of problems they had to solve that were incredibly difficult and required some high degree of mathematical analysis and some experimentation. And one of them was how to pump the fuel fast enough into the chamber so that it would burn and get the rocket off the ground. If the pumps don't go fast enough, the rocket's not going to move. It's going to sit there because you won't get enough thrust. And so being able to develop incredibly high-speed pumps that wouldn't cavitate, meaning produce its own little air bubbles, which is also applicable to cardiology because you don't want to produce air bubbles of any kind. And so the smooth laminar flow in the pumps, it applies to every single place that pumps are used. So you're right. There is a lot of cross-fertilization. And it occurs to me that the field of pediatric cardiothoracic surgery really preceded adult cardiothoracic surgery. They were doing kids first because what's the most common thing you hear done now for adults is like a cabbage, a coronary artery bypass graft. Nobody was doing those at all for a variety of reasons. One of the reasons was you couldn't put them on bypass to go ahead and pierce the coronary arteries. Once bypass was invented and perfected for kids, they could use it for adults and cabbages became possible. Anna Jaworski has written several books to empower the congenital heart defect or CHD community. These books can be found at Amazon.com or at her website, www.babyheartspress.com. Her bestseller is The Heart of a Mother, an anthology of stories written by women for women in the CHD community. Anna's other books, My Brother Needs an Operation, The Heart of a Father, and Hypoplastic Left Heart Syndrome, a handbook for parents, will help you understand that you are not alone. Visit babyheartspress.com to find out more. Heart to Heart with Anna is a presentation of Hearts Unite the Globe and is part of the Hug Podcast Network. Hearts Unite the Globe is a nonprofit organization devoted to providing resources to the congenital heart defect community to uplift, empower, and enrich the lives of our community members. If you would like access to free resources pertaining to the CHD community, please visit our website at www.congenitalheartdefects.com for information about CHD, the hospitals that treat children with CHD, summer camps for CHD survivors, and much, much more. We have a few fun facts for you, friends, about C. Walton Lillehei. The first one was that C. Walton Lillehei was dedicated to the development of pediatric cardiac surgery, and he traveled the country to visit other hospitals and learn techniques from more experienced surgeons. What I love about living in 2023 and even several years prior to this is that Surgeons now can even use phones. They can use computers to conference with each other. They don't necessarily have to physically travel to other hospitals in order to learn from each other and to be there to consult when that kind of consultation might save a life. Absolutely. One of the things that I found fascinating in this book is that Lil High's mentor, the surgeon who hired him, who was developing this enormous team of fresh young minds, saw a little high skill and knew he needed to have more exposure. So he gave him a month and a half, two months off. Little high took his brand new car and his wife and child and basically toured the country. He had a list of hospitals where they were doing pediatric heart surgery or experimenting with it. So he drove from place to place. 
And it was a combination vacation for his family. It was also a working trip. And he would go to hospitals and he would spend a day there. And if he saw they weren't doing anything unusual or anything that he could learn from, he'd go on to the next place. And some places he spent a whole week, like in Boston, because they were doing so much groundbreaking work there. But like you said, they didn't have the internet. They didn't have any really good educational system aside from physically going and seeing what they were doing. So he went and learned hands-on techniques by working with these surgeons, but he had to take himself there. And it was a huge investment of his professional time to do that, but it was worth it. Now, was that Dr. Vargas who had him do that? No, actually, Dr. Varco, I think you're talking about Richard Varco. Yeah, Varco worked with him and had preceded him in the training program there. But Varco kind of became an assistant surgeon to Dr. Oahai later on. The surgeon who was his right. mentor, Wangenstein. It was Owen Wangenstein. That's yeah, right. And he was the one who basically, in the 30s, he took a department with a very small budget of about $20,000. And he started to make a lot of noise about what he was going to do there and the things he was going to accomplish. And he went to the federal government and the state governments. And by the time that he hired Dr. Lillehei and Dr. Varco and other people like him, he was running a budget over a million dollars a year, which for 1952 was a tremendous amount of money. Absolutely. But he did that so he could concentrate all these minds in one place because just Lillehei had to tour the country to see different people's technique. If you get all the doctors in one place working together, there's a synergy and they learn a lot more by watching each other try things. So it was a smart move. Well, Lillehei, like many surgeons of his generation, actually served in World War II and later suffered from cancer and surgery to treat it. The surgery nearly killed him. Afterwards, his friends and colleagues said he seemed fearless and seemed to challenge death itself in his approach to healing. What do you think about that, Frank? I think that facing death yourself changed your attitude about it. Again, he did serve in the military, and he saw some pretty awful things all across North Africa and Europe when he was with the military. But also, the description of the surgery he had was pretty horrifying. They went in to take care of a tumor in his parotid gland below his jaw on one side, and they wound up tracking it down inside of his chest, cracking his chest, opening it up, cleaning out all kinds of stuff. And he spent four months recovering before he started doing surgery again. Four months, that's an enormous amount of time. Especially for a young surgeon who's developing your skills. If you've gone out of the field that long, that's tough. Yeah. And he was super handsome and he was young. And I'm sure that surgery left him disfigured to an extent. They said he had a scar that started below his left ear and went down his neck under his shirt. And you could see that. But of course, with time, it faded. But it it was obvious he had been there. And it also said in the book, King of Hearts, that patients and family members were struck by the fact that unlike some surgeons who'd be very businesslike and bustle in and bustle out, just get you to sign the paperwork and then walk away, he actually seemed to be sympathetic. He talked to them. He tried to understand what they were going through and explain to them things the best that he could. And that also may have developed from the fact that he had been through that kind of difficult situation himself. He knew what it was like to be a patient. He knew what it was like to be scared and to face his own mortality. Yes, absolutely. But it also sounds like he faced that demon and maybe that made him a little bit more fearless because he was able to actually triumph over death. Yeah. Yeah. And he worried about it for a long time. After his surgery, he had about a dozen or so radiation treatments. And he was told that the likelihood he'd have the cancer again and it might kill him within five years is pretty high. Obviously, it didn't do that. But just the thought of that hanging over you, yeah, that would make you fearless and willing to do anything. It was terrifying also that the radiation treatments, one of the possible side effects is it can cause cataracts. 
And this is before yeah. cataract surgery was very common. Right. And so he's a surgeon. If he loses the use of his eyes, he's done. Yeah. So he was scared of what could happen to him after this. And it may have made him more willing to go out and do whatever he could right now. One of the things that really surprises me, Frank, is that you and I have read a whole lot about these different surgeons and the different techniques that they started. And just last week, we were talking about Dr. Mustard. And we know of two different mustard procedures. And of course, early in our CHD research, we learned about Dr. Fontaine, and we learned about Dr. Norwood, you don't hear about a Lillehei procedure. Even though he was one of the greats in pediatric cardiac surgery, I'm really surprised that there's no procedure that bears his name. That is interesting. I know that you're right. There are what they call eponymic procedures or diagnoses. Tetralogy of Fallot, named after the French physician who discovered it or identified it. But I think it's or just a even matter a of... part of the anatomy, like the bundle of his. We know of some doctors because certain parts of our anatomy bears the last name of a physician who was sure. instrumental in helping us to learn more about that. But that's not the case with Dr. Lillehei. And yet, even though we don't have a procedure that bears his name, we don't have a part of our anatomy that bears his name. His name is still one that surfaces over and over again when you read about the history of pediatric cardiology. Absolutely. One of the things that you don't know because you don't work in surgery is that frequently surgical tools are named after the surgeon first used them or created them or designed them. And there's no little high forceps or anything like that. <laughs> I would not know about that. You're right. So the last little fun fact that we know about Dr. Lillehei was that he liked to wear gold watches and alligator shoes. And some of the other doctors thought he was a little bit too Hollywood. He did have a reputation. Last week, we talked about Dr. Mustard, and he was a crazy man. He would do dramatic things at parties, start food fights, and that sort of thing. Little High wasn't like that, but he was known for going out with his colleagues in the evenings and taking his wife out and going and having steaks and lobster and multiple martinis and dancing with their wives and that kind of thing. I assume they had good babysitters because they did this frequently, it sounded like. Yeah, he had a reputation for being a little flashy. The funny thing is, I remember reading from that book, and now mind you, I read that book years and years ago, but one of the things that struck me was that he was not good about finances. So somebody would write him a check, and he would just throw the check in the drawer, and it would stay there for, I don't know, weeks, months, whatever. I don't know how his wife was able to grocery shop and do the things that needed be done because it sounds like he was a very careless bookkeeper. I recall seeing that too. And one of the comparisons they made in the book was that in the operating room with his patients, he was incredibly organized and incredibly disciplined, but his office had stacks and stacks of paperwork and books and x-rays and that sort of thing. And he did leave checks uncashed for months at a time sometimes. And at one point he was approached about being the dean of a department at the university or being the head of his department. And he was horrified because he said, that's not what I do. He said, I, I'm not an administrator. I can't do office work. It would be a terrible fit. I want to keep doing clinical work. He wanted to do surgery. I think it's good when people know what they're good at so that they can continue to leave their mark on the world instead of rising up through the ranks until they land in a job where they're not good and where they're not happy. Absolutely. I feel the same way about my work. I'm a nurse anesthetist. And I'm very happy being a clinical nurse anesthetist that I have really good people who are managers. Thank goodness they exist because I sure as heck couldn't do that. 
I've been asked before, because I'm one of the older people in my department, why haven't I tried for those jobs? And the answer is because I'd be terrible at it. And I would go from somebody that everybody liked working with to somebody that everybody hated working with because I would do a terrible job at it. You know how yeah, this is, thanks, Anna. Thanks, Holly. Thanks, Summer. Thanks, yeah. Chandeli. Absolutely. <laughs> really Anna, you manage the finances at home. You manage the finances because I would be awful at it. Absolutely. This has been such a fun episode to record. Thank you, Frank, for joining me today on this Medical Monday episode. It's always a pleasure to talk with my beautiful wife. You know how I am. Well, friends, that does conclude this episode of Heart to Heart with Anna. And this is our special Medical Monday series for Heart Month, February 2023. Please find it in your heart to go to Buzzsprout and become a subscriber to Heart to Heart with Anna for just a midget of money a month. You could be a subscriber. We'll be inviting you to come do some town hall meetings with us. This is our way to give back to the congenital heart defect community so we can keep all of this programming free. We provide hope. We provide encouragement. We give people a chance to tell their stories. This is their platform. So thanks for listening today. And remember, my friends, you are not alone. Thank you again for joining us this week. We hope you have become inspired and empowered to become an advocate for the congenital heart community. Heart to Heart with Anna with your host, Anna Jaworski, can be heard at any time wherever you get your podcasts. A new episode is released every Tuesday from noon Eastern time.